All right, okay, Westminster Larger Catechism, question two. Ask this, how doth it appear that there is a God? So how does it appear to everybody that there is a God? Uh, this is a question we're asking, namely, um, how do we know God exists, or how might we prove God's existence? Uh, that's what we're looking at. And the answer that is given is that the very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. Uh, let's ask God's blessing as we look at this. Heavenly Father, we thank you not only that you exist, but that you have revealed yourself to us, that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to show us uh, the Father. And we ask that we would always go to you through him by the power of your spirit to know you more and more and experience that eternal life now in the knowledge of God. Would you bless us and give us enlightenment uh, to look into this summary of your word now? And we ask this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so we're talking about, again, how can we prove the existence of God? Uh, we might phrase a question, why should I be a theist, that is someone who believes in God, as opposed to an atheist, someone who does not believe in God? And this question says that the light of nature and man, the works of God, declare plainly that God exists. Okay, so if it's plain, we would expect most people to believe in God which indeed, most people in the world do believe in some God. And throughout all human history, almost everybody has believed in God. And even in our day, I think often um, the claims and worries of atheism are a little bit overblown. Only about three or 4% of Americans actually claim to be atheists. And about another three or 4% claim to be agnostics, which is saying, um, I can't, we can't know if God exists, right? So an atheist says God doesn't exist, the agnostic says, we can't know if God exists. And so together, that's 7 or 8% of the population, which matters, but it is plain that there is a God, which makes sense why most people believe in God. But still, we can look at how it is that this plainness of God's existence is found in the world. And so the main concept we're looking at today is the concept of general revelation. Um, going to use this whiteboard thing. General revelation is the main concept we're looking at, which is generally, how has God revealed himself? How has God revealed that he exists? And in Christian theological history, it's often been talked about types of revelation as two books that God has given humanity to read. Uh, the book of nature, which is general revelation, uh, um, and God's Word, the book of the Holy Scriptures, which we call special revelation, because Scripture is specially given to reveal God particularly, whereas the first book, general revelation, reveals God generally. And so let's focus on general revelation, and this answer tells us that there's two things generally that shout out, that declare plainly that there is a God, and they are the light of nature in man and the works of of God. Okay, so let's start off looking at the light of nature in man. Um, and actually, we could distinguish these as the internal proclamation and an external proclamation of God's existence. So this idea of the light of nature in man, this isn't really a sort of language or conception that we use commonly these days. It's a part of what was called natural theology. Um, which was the type of language used more in the past. But when we're talking about the light of nature and man, 
Light in scripture is something that emanates from God. Light is referring to a divine source. So when we're considering the light of nature in man, we're considering really the image of God in man and what is left of that image after sin. So though all people are made in God's image, that image through sin has been been defaced. It's been defiled. Uh, You might think of it as, say, there was a master painting, and then you know how sometimes in history um, other people paint over top of it, um, covering up, but it's still underneath there. It's still there to some extent, though defiled, corrupted, defaced. And so these remnants of God in us is, is, is a light. There's some sort of light there that is declaring God's existence, even though mired in sin. And The the catechism in question 17 talks about the way God created man. It says that God created man with a living, reasonable, immortal soul, made man and woman after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written on their hearts and power to fulfill it. So what changes in the fall is no longer does man have this knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, but man still has a living soul, a reasonable soul, and an, an, and an, an immortal soul. But still having also the law of God written on the heart, though in an imperfect way, but no longer having power naturally to fully keep God's law. And so a key concept here, perhaps the key concept when we're considering what's meant by how does the light of nature in man reveal God, is that it is the law of God written upon the heart of man sometimes what we call the conscience, that there's this internal sense of right and wrong that is built into human beings as a natural intuition, as it were. And this is declared plainly in Romans 2, 14 to 15, which says this, that when the Gentiles who do not have the law, okay, God never gave them the Mosaic law, they by nature, okay, they naturally do what the law requires, They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So he's saying everyone naturally has these twinges of conscience where there's this idea, I think I've done something wrong. Um, C.S. Lewis introduces uh, in Mere Christianity, one of his first ideas is this idea of, you know, you have kids playing on the playground, one is mean to another, pushes them, and there's just a sense in all of us that, hey, you shouldn't do it, that, that's wrong. Somehow that is cosmically always wrong uh, to bully this other kid, and he calls it the law of human nature. Uh, this natural sense that everyone has that there is right and wrong. And even when people go so far as to deny morality, uh, they'll, they'll still get mad if you punch them in the face, right? They'll feel uh, violated in some significant way. And so um, these aspects of morality are stamped upon our hearts. Um, that's why you find a lot of common uh, conceptions across every tribe and culture of what is right and wrong. Most every tribe considers um, murdering of uh, family members And things like that, adultery, wrong. Not 100%, but generally this is revealed. Um, When talking about the Sabbath, the, uh, the, um, the catechism in another place says that for this moral law, there's less light of nature for it. So they might say, um, we can even think of that gradient as, it's more evident naturally that you shouldn't murder people than it is that you should take one day a week to rest and worship God. 
Though there still is some light for that, just not as much, okay? So we can think of these common senses of morality, um, though sometimes the conscience is seared, it gets accustomed to sin, sin becomes normal to it. But there is some sort of basic human instinct about the existence of right and wrong that just can't be denied. It's just the most natural human intuition. So this is the light of nature and man. The sense of right and wrong declares that there's a God. But it, the light of nature isn't only the sense of morality. Uh, one theologian uses the language of broken signposts to talk about these things within us that point to God. Um, any sort of invisible um, feeling like this speaks of God. So he talks about things like um, our sense of justice, love between us, spirituality, beauty, freedom, truth, and power. How all these things, when you really think about where do these ideas about beauty come from? Where do our ideas about freedom come from? And that if you take that broken signpost or almost like a diving board, if you follow it through to its full conclusion, how is it that beauty can actually exist? Um, you end up diving off and landing in the pool of God as the source of it all. That's what this light of nature and man leads to. Clearly, this did not arise naturally within us. And so, when we think about human history then, there's this idea that people have been seeking to find out what is the best way to live. Uh, the philosophers want to know what is the good life. And because God has designed the world to fit a certain level of morality, such that it's a terrible way to live, murdering people and lying. You might think you get ahead, but ultimately it hurts you. We could think of this world, the way God's designed it, it is like a, a keyhole. With You know how keys have all those ridges and little points. And if through trial and error, people in the world might keep trying different keys, filing things down, and maybe eventually, through trial and error, they'll realize things like, it's actually really good to always tell the truth. It's really good to care for your family. It's really good to protect your children. And they can find, naturally, a lot of things that are true. They can find out a lot of the ways that God's designed this world to work. But it's only at best going to be like, you know when you've tried different keys in a lock, and somehow they fit, but they just don't turn it. There, there is something that's close, but it's never going to be able to actually open the lock. And so question 60 of the catechism says that the best philosophers, be they ever so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature, they'll never actually come to salvation through it. So we can think of um, great philosophers like Aristotle or even the Stoic philosophers. They got a lot of things right. They, they came up with a lot of true conceptions of good ways to live. Um, John Calvin himself had a lot of respect for the Stoic philosophers and actually was quick to show a lot of the areas of agreement. So, but that is saying, just through the natural light of figuring out what is the best way to live in this world, they actually get a lot of things right about God. But these keys, be they ever so close fitting in the lock, they never open the door of spiritual life, never open the door of true spiritual good, and they will always leave you locked out, though they might improve your life in this world. And so this light of nature, it declares plainly that there is a God. Because on a conception of nature alone, so naturalism, and material alone, 
you can never have a true sense of any of these things, this goodness, truth, beauty, or morality. Because you might think of it as, if morality, as is said today, is part of the process of evolution, that as a herd, we've kind of grown up and our sense of right and wrong is basically just our herd instinct to propagate the species. So yes, we all naturally feel like we shouldn't murder because then we're more likely to get murdered and it's not in our own best interest. We, we might call this an intrinsic morality. That is a morality that's grown up within humanity. But the problem there is that then this internal morality is subject to whatever external changes happen. So maybe then we progress and we realize it is good to murder um, everybody. Maybe we should wipe out humanity so that true nature can flourish. And um, maybe things like genocide could be justified in some cases because this is only just a conception of what works for us now. It's no actual higher unchanging standard. But if we want to have some sort of unchanging morality, such as, you know, it is always wrong to kidnap people into enslavement. If we want to say that's always wrong, we need a morality that is extrinsic. It comes from outside of us, meaning it's higher than us, coming from ultimately an absolute. That's, what the, that, that's where the philosophers got to. We need some sort of absolute and an absolute intelligence. And so living in that way is the best way to live. Um, I heard one time an interview with a former atheist who was talking that trying to live consistently with the idea that there isn't any true morality, there isn't any true free will, isn't any true beauty, he said trying to live consistently that way was really like trying to slowly rip out every connecting cord that God had hardwired in the human mind and almost slowly a process of dehumanizing yourself because you are removing all these natural things that God's given us as intuitions. So the light of nature declares plainly that there is a God. Um, any, any questions or comments on this idea of the light of nature speaking of God? Okay, so let's look at now the works. Okay, we're still in general at Revelation. How do the works of God declare plainly that there is a God? Okay, so this is external. Um, God's existence is declared in his works, and the works of God are defined a little later in the Catechism as his works of creation and providence. And uh, we, we did look a little bit last week at creation, but just this idea again from Romans 1 that the created world, the beauty of the mountains, the birds, humanity, it declares that God is powerful and that God is divine. Because um, the fact of existence itself, the fact that we're at a now in time, points to the fact that there was a start of existence. This all came from something. There must have been some cause. Because if this natural world was eternal, then we can never get up to now in time. It's an infinite regress. And so existence itself points to the fact of some creator of existence, but not only that, the fact of the intricacy of this world and the incredible harmony between all living things points to the fact that this existence had to have come from some sort of intelligence. Randomization could not have led to this complex of a world. It would have broken down a billion times over before now. 
And so what these two things get us, just from the natural world, it should lead us to the idea of an all-powerful intelligence. Uh, an, an intelligence smart enough to design a world, a power powerful enough to create the world. Just the fact of existence that we have now de declares plainly an all-powerful intelligence. Notice it says a god here, not necessarily the one true and living god, but the fact of god's existence. And so this is how God's um, works of creation speak to his existence. But also God's works of providence. This is a part of this discussion that I think we often miss, is that how God has ordered history also speaks of his existence. Um, I, I heard it said one time, I don't remember who, and I'm not sure what I think of this idea, but I find it intriguing. He said there's only really two school subjects to study. There's history and science. Um, science in general just tells us what God has made. What are the laws of mathematics that God has made? What are the laws of narrative storytelling that God has made? Science. Uh, but then also history. What has God done? Um, how has God ordered reality up until now? Anyways, take that for what you will. Only two subjects, science and history. Um, and history declares plainly the existence of God. Uh, if we look at just how God has led and raised humanity, especially in his history with his people, uh, the miraculous deliverance of the Israelites, the, the, um, the state of Israel under David and Solomon, but especially the coming of the Lord Jesus in history, his resurrection, and not only that, but the miraculous growth and spread of the church. E all this history is also declaring that there is a God. But even more generally, History is really a sense of purpose. And when people are considering that they have some desire to have a life that is purposeful and meaningful, it's this idea of, I want my life to count in the flow of history. I want to feel like I'm a part of some trajectory that matters. So even that natural sense of history having meaning is also a declaration of God. And not to mention also the incredible historical preservation of God's word in the scriptures. Um, history declares plainly that there is God. Any, any questions about uh, the works of God declaring God's existence? Okay, alrighty. So where this leaves us, this is telling us about apologetic method, right? So you've, you're probably familiar with the idea of apologetics being a defense of the faith, right? We're defending the faith. And in Christianity today, there are three main schools of Christian apologetics. Um, I'll note this on the board. There are, there is classical apologetics. Um, there is evidential, and there is presuppositional. Okay, classical, evidential and presuppositional. And all of these take an aspect of this answer and they form it into a whole school of apologetics. So what classicists, those that hold to a classical school of apologetics, uh, this has been the dominant view of church history. It was particularly enmeshed in the works of Thomas Aquinas around the turn of the uh, second century. And what this does is it really focuses on that light of nature piece. And classical apologists focus on a few arguments for God's existence. Uh, three of the most common ones are what are called the cosmological argument, which is saying that 
all that ex everything that we see happening has a cause. And if you trace that chain of causation all the way back, you have to end up at a first cause, right? Some initial creator, as it will. The cosmological argument. Secondly, they talk about the teleological argument, which is the argument from design, saying that everything that exists in its intricacy and order points to some intelligent designer that would have made it this way. And the third one is what's called the moral argument, which is what, what we looked at, this, this natural sense of right and wrong, this idea of a higher standard of morality that all people are subject to. Um, these three arguments point to God's existence. And that's what classicists really focus on. Secondly, this is a really popular, much more modern idea of apologetics is evidentialists. So they'd say, how do you learn to believe anything? You just look at the evidence. So this is really focusing on God's works in history. And so particularly apologists in the evidential frame of things, they want to say, well, what is the evidence for the resurrection? Look at how the lives of these apostles were changed. Look, look at how they even pierced his side and the guards um, on their lives uh, being hanging in the balance. They say, look at that evidence. How could you deny the resurrection? Or they'll look at the evidence for scripture's divine authorship, all the unique qualities of scripture, or all the um, fulfillments of prophecy and its preservation. They want us to consider evidence to believe in God. Um, here you might think of a popular books like Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, J. Warner Wallace's Cold Case Christianity. Uh, this is the main thing they, these days. People find this really appealing, though historically it has not taken as much credence. Um, and lastly, there are presuppositionalists. This is what we largely encounter in modern Reformed thought, but it's also a pretty new idea as well. And what presuppositionalists say is they say, ah, these guys are both flawed. Classicists, evidentialists, they're all starting on the wrong starting point. Because the problem is they're starting on neutral ground. They're saying, okay, unbeliever, you and me, let's pretend we're the same. And now let's, based on our commonality, let's start to consider whether there's enough proof that God exists. And they say this is flawed because even to start there, you are presupposing some things to be true. And they would say only on Christian presuppositions does this even make any sense. So here would be an example. It would be say, well, the unbeliever says, science says this. And they'd say, but on your materialistic, naturalistic presuppositions, how, why does science even work? You see, science assumes an ordered universe. It assumes that repetition will yield similar results. They're saying that's a faith assumption. The fact that even science should work. So they're saying you're already stealing Christian ideas to even try to make your case. Or they say if you're looking at the um, argument for the first cause, they'd say you're using the laws of logic. The laws of logic aren't a physical object in this world. You're assuming that logic exists. You're assuming that logic works. You're stealing our ideas already that God created an ordered world where there is math, even though it's invisible, where there is logic, even though it's invisible. That's what, what, what the presuppositionists would say. So they would say, what you need to do is see, based on what you assume about the world, what actually makes sense of our existence the most. And they'd say, only under a Christian understanding can you even describe this world and make sense of our experience within it. And so what this ends up being called, this sort of argument, is called the transcendental argument 
for the existence of God. They're saying Christianity is the only thing that has explanatory power for our experience of life in this world. So they'd say Christianity is that key that opens the lock. And if you try out Christianity, it in a sense makes sense of everything. Um, he was not a presuppositionalist, but you might think of C.S. Lewis's famous quote that where he says something like, I don't believe in the sun because I see it, but because by its light, I see everything else. So they say, only by the light of Christianity can everything else be seen. And so they're looking at the implications of worldview. So they'd say, on your naturalistic assumptions, how could you make sense of this or that or the other? And now there is a lot of debate between these three schools. These people say these people are terrible. These people say these people are dumb and not historical. Whatever the case may be, personally, I think they're all right. <laughs> um, there, there's truth and usefulness um, in all these ways because none of them are sufficient in and of themselves. And that's why our answer continues that um, the only sufficient and effectual route to salvation is the word and spirit. And so when we're looking at all these arguments, all of these have explanatory power for the life we experience. Um, the, the classical arguments make sense, but if you try to totalize that and say this is the only system that has anything to say, um, you're missing out on the truths of evidence that if it's true that Jesus rose from the dead, of course there would be evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And these presuppositionalists, if Christianity is true, of course it's the only thing that makes sense of the world. So I think there's often too much shouting past each other. And I think when we're talking to unbelieving friends or family members, I'm kind of of the mind that whatever they find persuasive, go with it. If they find the moral argument persuasive, great. If they find the, ev the evidence for just the, um, the prophecies being fulfilled in scripture, awesome, because it's all true. And we can use all truth to seek to move people closer to an openness to God. Of course, hoping the Spirit to do His work. And so anyways, I, I think we can uh, enjoy the good that's discovered in each of these. But again, the Catechism says these things, they plainly de declare that there's a God. But the issue is they don't specifically speak of God. It's general revelation. It's not specific. And so nature, conscience, these things, they don't tell man the way of salvation. They don't finally give that key that opens the door to eternal life. And anyone that thinks that we can find out all there is to know from science alone or um, psychology alone, they're going to be sorely disappointed at where they're led. Because, as the Catechism says here, God's word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal God unto men for their salvation. And so if we are moving now to special revelation, special revelation is God's word and God's spirit. The word is the external witness, the special external witness to God specifically. It's a word outside of us. It's a published word, unchanging. You can read it and analyze it. It's there and you can't avoid it but also an internal witness to God, namely the work of the Holy Spirit. Because only the Holy Spirit can soften a hard heart, can enlighten blind eyes. We need the Word and Spirit to bring anybody to an estate of salvation. Because only Word and Spirit, as the Catechism says, is sufficient 
and effectual. So the reverse implication of that is that light of nature, works of creation, they're insufficient and ineffectual. But don't forget, that doesn't mean they are useless. Insufficient, the light of nature is insufficient. That means that it does do something, right? If you had a bank card that you swipe and it says insufficient funds, that doesn't necessarily mean you have no funds. It just means you don't have enough. So these arguments can matter, and they can be sufficient for some things, just not for salvation. Um, these arguments for God's existence are a good start. It's a good way to begin seeing people's minds open up. They're, but they're not sufficient for salvation, nor are they effectual. So effectual meaning, does it work? Apart from special revelation, the key will never turn the lock and open the door. Only word and spirit do that. But that doesn't mean they're not effectual for anything. It's just saying these apologetics aren't effectual for salvation, but apologetics can be effectual for casting down arguments and high things that are raised up against the knowledge of God. Apologetics can be useful for, for repelling doubts that get shot into the hearts of, of teenagers and young adults. There's many things they can be effective in, just not for ultimate salvation or spiritual transformation. So although they are insufficient and ineffectual, that doesn't mean they're useless. Does, does that make sense? Any, any questions or comments? Okay, I want to move into a few thoughts by way of application. If we have looked at this answer, tried to understand what it's telling us about general and special revelation. And just to note, um, we were not focusing on special revelation today because more questions flesh that out. The point of this question is the general revelation piece. Okay, application. I think sometimes we put a little bit too much hope into apologetics. So we think that if we have really good apologetics in our Sunday school program, our sons and daughters will not fall away from the faith because they'll be able to be like that kid in God's Not Dead that can stick it to their atheist professor. And we think that these arguments and stuff will really make them um, so strong in the faith. And again, I think there's a usefulness, but that is not going to be what ultimately keeps sons and daughters in the faith. Um, the best defense, if you will, or the best offense here, I don't think is a good defense of the faith. I think what's most effective is a compelling, positive presentation of the Christian life. And so much, I think, often teaching of young people has been kind of, hey, here's what you do, here are your duties, and then here are your intellectual arguments. And, and that becomes very unsatisfying after a while, because like, just wait, why am I keeping these regulations and I'm just trying to be able to beat people in arguments? No, but a positive, compelling vision of this is the best way to live. This is the only way to live. God's ways work. God's ways are to his glory, but also to our enjoyment, which we spent last week looking at. The only way to live a meaningful life is to glorify and enjoy God. And so we, we need to not trust in apologetics as if this is some saving key. Helpful in ways, but it's, it's really not ultimate. And also in our evangelism and our dealing with unbelievers. Um, okay, I was looking at the time there. I don't know if, what, what clock is correct. Okay, we're good. Um, 
how do we get confused also about how people change their minds? And sociological research shows us that usually a presentation of facts and data doesn't really change people's minds. And if you've ever argued with someone on Facebook and you thought that linking the article that's the fact check will change their mind, it doesn't. Um, this, this is a secular psychologist, but um, Jonathan Haddett wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, looking at how do people change their views on politics and religion. And of course, he's not taking into account the spiritual operation of the spirit, but naturally how we observe people changing their minds, um, he outlines a four-step process of what's observable. First is that people come into, into contact with people with whom they disagree, and they find that they actually like that person. They're like, oh, this person's not a crazy wacko. They're actually really nice and thoughtful and kind. And then from that general likability, is this is a curiosity comes up. It's like, oh, well, if they think that and they're not crazy, maybe they had reasons why they thought that. And it, it can pique a curiosity to be like, I want to look into that more. And then the next step is that coming into contact, they actually come to the place where they would think that vision is so compelling and that way of viewing the word is so attractive to me that I would actually want to believe that. And then once that desire to believe something comes, uh, the mind will actually convince itself of reasons to believe. Most people don't actually believe what they believe because they've reasoned themselves there. It's usually that they actually want to believe that and convince themselves post hoc um, of their beliefs being true. Um, so the, the, the point here is that a loving relationship is going to be more powerful than the best apologetic arguments. Because what usually arguments end up doing is it just leaves us either with embarrassment that we don't know what we're talking about or some sort of smug sense of satisfaction that we really stuck it to them. We really exposed how dumb that other person is. And that actually does not usually draw people closer. Because God has designed us that we are fundamentally relational beings. <coughs> We are meant to live in relationship, and that's generally where transformation happens. And we need to remember also that although the light of nature, the works of God declare plainly that God exists, this is not where we should be spending our time, primarily evangelistically. Not that God might not call some people to be thinkers in the public sphere and work on this stuff, but it says it's already plain. We actually don't need to convince people of the existence of God because it's plain. What we need is that which is sufficient and effectual, which is word and spirit. That's where transformation happens. That's where salvation comes, through the word and the spirit, not the light of nature, not the works of providence, not our smarts and intellect and arguments. It, God draws people to himself through his word and by his spirit. Therefore, the most effective apologetic technique, the most effective evangelistic technique, is to bring people into contact with God's word. Because where the word of God is, that's where the spirit of God is. The word of God is a sword that the spirit wields to cut people to the heart. And so what we want to be doing is we want to be drawing people in to where the word of God is. And where do we especially experience the word of God and the spirit of God? It's in corporate worship. And there's a reason why if you actually survey people of where they got saved or how they came to faith, 90 plus percent will say 
someone invited me to church and I heard the word of God preached and I came to faith. This is the environment where the word and spirit are active and that's where God most commonly, okay, not only, but most commonly works. And so it seems so simple to invite someone to church, but that is often the most powerful evangelistic tool in your arsenal. You don't need to be smart to be able to do it. You don't have to remember the cosmological and teleological argument. You just need someone to like you enough that they will actually um, maybe want to go somewhere with you. And um, maybe that can take some pressure off. The, here, here, here's my tagline I was happy I came up with. The best apologetic is the local church. Okay, let's just remember that. The best apologetic is the local church. And if someone's not ready to come all the way to corporate worship, how do we draw them into deeper contact to the word and spirit? Could we invite them into our home and they're there as we do family worship, family devotions? They, they hear the word read. Could we invite someone to a small group or a Friday night fellowship? And the more and more we can draw people into greater and greater contact with the word of God, we'll find, as has historically been the case, that God converts people as they are drawn into the life of faith and community. Um, maybe I'll just actually close with a, a story. Um, um, my, my, my friend Chris back in Vancouver, his, his wife had um, been a believer for years. He was a convinced unbeliever. The first time he came to our church, he told my dad, he said, I think you guys are all just brainwashed. It's silly. But for his wife's sake and his kid's sake, he was willing to start coming to church. And as he got to know different people, different men had different conversations with him. My dad talked to him. My friend Steve talked to him. And over the next few years, as he more and more talked to different men, um, he, he eventually um, came to faith. And it was a really lovely story. And actually, his first notice of faith in his heart was that him and his wife went to a special event at a, at a church and someone else from our church walked in. It was like um, it was a, it was an event a different church was hosting, and he just had this thought. He said, "I love those people." He he didn't even really know them in the church. They were an older couple, and he just thought, "I love these people." And from that time on, he began actively pursuing faith and uh, leading his family, and and his family is walking with the Lord. But it was over time as the community um, loved him, kept talking with him, kept answering his questions, that the Lord was working through all these ordinary means to draw Chris to faith, and to God be the glory. And so let's not feel like we need to hit the nail all the way in on our one conversation, or we be thinking, if I can just break this conversation open to talk about the existence of God, that'll be all I need. No, it's little steps as God is drawing people to himself and we get to partner and maybe be just one step of the process of bringing people into closer contact with the word and spirit of God. Amen. Um, time's up. So we, we don't have time to questions. If you want to talk to me about anything, catch me after or after the service today. Um, and let's pray to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you have not um, been silent, but you have um, heralded the good news um, from the rooftops, from the mountaintops, you've sent runners, people who have carried your gospel even across the seas to where we are now, Lord. And we bless and praise you that we've come into contact with your word and spirit. And we praise you that you have brought so many of us into the family of God. And we ask this morning, once again, as we go into corporate worship, that we would give attention to your word and that you would transform us by your spirit that we would come to 
contact with the living God. And for any that are unbelieving in our midst today, Lord, we ask that your spirit would work effectually and sufficiently in their hearts to bring them to conviction of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would continue building your church even in our midst. And we pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.